Hi folks, Jack Spirico here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes, podcasts, blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. Well, folks, today we are rewinding back to October the 6th, 2015. Here, one little unique thing about this one. When you hear we go back to the original, uh, I'm doing a workshop this week, and this uh, episode was done right after a workshop. I think this was a year where I did like three or four workshops, not all here, but I did like over six weeks, I did like three or four, and it really, really kind of wore me down. I learned a lot from that experience. I'm doing a lot less of them now. Uh, but I'm a little hoarse, but it's, it's a good enough delivery that it certainly works for a rewind. It wasn't one of those ones where I barely made it to the end. Um, there's some interesting stuff about this one. So this is all the way back in 2015, and... I'm talking here about basic preparedness, and I start out talking about the threat probability matrix. If you don't know what that is, along with the disaster impact scale, you'll hear about it in a second, so don't worry. But one of the things I mention is the likelihood of a pandemic with a 90% death rate around the world is pretty unlikely. So now what we have is a pandemic that's impacted high on the impact scale, right, as that it affected a global... Uh, audience, but what I said was true. It doesn't have a 90% death rate. It doesn't have a 10% death rate. It doesn't have a 1% death rate. It's far more mild than the pandemic that I've always been afraid that we would get. My fear was always that we would get something that would kill about 5% of the people that got it and hospitalize about 25% of the people that got it. If we did that, the, the world would come to an absolute standstill. And it would be a very, very difficult thing to get through. And that's what I was talking about. And here we get this thing that has a fractional, fraction of a fraction of a percent of people that it actually kills. And a hospitalization rate that's in the like 2% range, if, if that, really. Uh, you wonder how many of the people in the hospital are in the hospital for COVID and how many of the people are in the hospital with COVID. Those are totally different things. But this this actually broke, sort of, what I call inverse relationship between threat probability and disaster impact scale. I've always taught that we should first prepare for the things that only affect us. And then we prepare for the things that would affect you know, our neighborhood, our street, our block. Our, then from there, like there would be city level. And then regional, small regional, large regional, national, global. And if you listen to that, you might think, well, Jack got that all effed up wrong. If you listen to the whole thing, or if you, if you go over my teaching over 13 years, you'll see that I, got, I didn't get that wrong at all. I never said we wouldn't have a global impact disaster. I said the most probable thing that would affect you would be something that only affects you, and then the probability waned as the size of the impact grew. Because we don't generally have a whole lot of global thermal nuclear war. Right, And we don't generally have like zombie-level pandemics, and we still haven't had either of those and some other stuff that I mentioned. But the, the, the methodology wasn't based on never having a global impact. The methodology was based on, hey, if you're starting with nothing, 
And you watch an Alex Jones video and you're convinced that tomorrow the UN's going to show up with blue helmets and throw you on a train and take you away, there's absolutely no way for you to go from zero to prepared for that level of lunacy without having a heart attack and failing and going broke. So that we have to take a logical approach. And I'll tell you where this came from. For years, I did business coaching. By the way, please stop asking me to coach you in your business. I don't do that. Because I did something doesn't mean I do something, okay? But I did a lot of kind of business-level coaching. I acted as a mentor for people. Generally, by the way, these were not people that found me on the Internet and said, hey, tell you going to build a business. There were people that worked for me, that I built entrepreneurship into so that I would gain from them while they worked for me and that they would need me someday and could go do something. So that's what I'm talking about. But I would sit down and talk with people about building a business, and they say, I want to make $100,000 a year. Great. Have you ever made a dollar on your own, purely on your own? Not you did something for somebody else and they gave you a dollar, right? Have you ever started something from zero and made a dollar? And they would inevitably say, well, well no, not yet. Okay, well, let's make a dollar. And, it, you know... It was a mindset thing. It wasn't necessarily the case that the first transaction that ran through their business was going to earn them a dollar. That was the goal, to have at least a dollar of profit occur. And the reason for that was if you want to make $100,000 a year, you first have to make a dollar. Now, maybe that first transaction nets you a hundred or a thousand. Great. But let's be honest about the fact that we're not going to go from zero to a six-figure income in a new business. So once we've made whatever that first thing was, we've learned so much. What did it take? How did it work? How do we calculate our profit? Were we right about our profit? What was our actual cost of labor when we back it into our time that we put in a sweat equity? Can that be like, there's just so much we learned from that first absolute success that this worked. How well did it work? Is it really profitable? What do we need to do? And now we can start building on that. And now we can say, okay, we, we have a methodology that appears to work. Let's try to make $1,000, $5,000, $10,000, something that's reasonable based on the numbers and the metrics in the business. And then when we got to there, we, now we've learned a thousand times more than we learned from that first transaction. But we needed that first transaction to get off of zero, to go from zero to one. That's the most difficult piece. And now that we've done that, Is this the right? But now we make ten thousand bucks, right? In profit, not not just gross revenue. But does this make sense? With all the things we've learned, is there something that's more profitable, more beneficial to us, more we're more passionate about? Like, do we just do this and basically get paid to learn to run a business, or does this business now have legs? And we make a decision from there. And if we we got to where we made ten thousand dollars, we just do what we did again, or we apply it to another space and do it twice, and now we have $20,000. Well, now we're starting to get somewhere. Can't live on that real well, but we're starting to get somewhere. And if we do that again, we're at forty grand. Now, that's a pretty reasonable salary to pay yourself. It's not where you want to stop, but we can do that again. We're at eighty. We can do that again. We're, we, we've, we've blown away our $100,000 initial goal. We've got $160,000 in income, and then we figured out that we got to make about $160,000 to have the same results as $100,000 if somebody else is paying all the other components of our lives and the overhead, etc. But now we're feeling pretty good, and we can do whatever we want, and we have freedom. What the hell does that have to do with starting from zero with prepping? we got to get from zero to one, and zero to one is the most difficult piece to do with anything.
And the person that thinks they already went to 10, but they're on 2, usually needs to step back to 0, think about it, and go to 1 again. And so if we get ready for a job loss, have our life disrupted by an illness, a localized storm, somebody takes our power out for a week, we get ready for all those things. Then we've learned a tremendous amount, and we've put a foundation underneath what we're building, this preparedness lifestyle, the sustainable lifestyle, this resiliency, this non-brittleness, we're building something, and we need that foundation. And th that might be just getting ourselves to where we could just sit in our house and lose nothing, not even sleep, for seven days. Here it goes. Here's the same pattern. We do that again, it's 14. We do that again, it's a month. I know that's only 28 days, but hey, it's February. You could stretch another couple days, okay? So now we're to a month. Well, most people, if they had a month of longevity with the first global disaster that we've ever really seen in our adult lifetimes, I guess some of you might be old enough, maybe you remember the tail end of World War II. That was a global disaster too, by the way. Would have sailed right through all this shit. Without the panicking, without racing your friends down the aisle away to get more toilet paper from Costco, 30 days would have taken most of the panic away. But you do it again, you got 60. You do that again, you got four months. And when you get to four months, you're about as ready as anybody's ever going to be for whatever scenario you can come up with. Because if it gets bad enough that that's not going to be enough to get you through and out the other end of it, and, and all that time, that 120 days to figure out what to do to get to the next 30, 60, 120 on the other side of it, we've got a whole different world of problem at that point. We're in doomsday prepper scenarios at that point. So if you're concerned about that, once we get to that four months, we do that again, we're at eight, we do that again, or just half of it again, we got a year. But it all starts from going from zero to one. And I just wanted to point that out, put your mindset in the right place as you go into this. And I also wanted to point out that while you may look at a global disaster, which COVID-19's bullshit is, and it is bullshit. It is a man-made disaster. It's not a biological disaster, if you haven't figured it out yet. It doesn't break the formula. It doesn't break the formula. Right now, in the middle of a global disaster, many people who have just strategically located themselves in the right place are not affected by it very much at all. But you still have supply chain shortages that are kind of a peripheral that come off of it that could affect you. But the thing that's most likely to really sink you, losing your job, being crushed by debt, fire burning down your house. Those things are still more likely to screw up your life. They really are. So I thought this would be a good episode to put in at this time as a rewind. Because it really is going back to the fundamentals. I remember when I used to play sports as a kid. We had a bad game. Go in. You knew exactly what you were going to be doing the next practice after a bad game. Men, we're going to work on the fundamentals. There's a reason. And you know what? We'd only, we didn't only work on the fundamentals when we had a bad game. We just always worked on the fundamentals when we had a bad game. To avoid bad games, we also worked on the fundamentals all the time. With that, here we go. All the way back to October 6, 2015. Please remember, while we don't do uh, commercial content during these rewinds, you can always help us out by doing your online shopping where? tspaz.com.
we start out with what I call the threat probability matrix. And that is, what is the probability that any given threat that we would prepare for will actually happen to you in your lifetime? So these would be things that generally people, when you watch TV, worry about are uh, really bad, but actually the probability are really low, but that's what everybody focuses on. And what I mean by that would be global thermal nuclear war would be one example. The probability that you're going to see the whole world nuke itself in your lifetime is actually really, really low. Um, and don't worry about how bad it is if it happens. That's that's the next thing. Just just follow me through this. The odds that you will see uh, an asteroid impact the planet in an extinction-level event like uh, we think knocked out the dinosaurs are very, very low that that will happen in your lifetime. The odds that an EMP from the sun, an electromagnetic pulse from the sun, will actually be intense enough to truly take down the global electrical grid, very, very low. The odds that we'll have a pandemic that will wipe out 90% of the population are actually pretty damn low. Okay? These are all the things that people prepare for. These are all the things that the people who sell stuff to the preparedness industry use fear, uh, uncertainty, and doubt to market to you with. Okay, And if I sound a little hoarse, I'm still recovering from uh, the workshop that we just did, so I apologize for that. But that's the stuff that's on the extreme low probability side. Even if the probability that something like that will eventually happen, uh, sooner or later this planet will get hit by an asteroid again. The odds that it will happen to you are relatively low. And then we have the disaster impact scale. Okay, And, and we'll, we'll kind of tie this into the threat probability matrix. But I'm, I'm going to go there because new people are going to be like, but, 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 what if? Okay, What if we do have a, a Yellowstone supervolcano eruption or... Uh, an EMP, or we have a, a CME, you know, something like that, a coronal mass suggestion from the sun, I'm sorry if I said EMP earlier for that, or an EMP like somebody gets a hold of a nuke and detonates it over New York City or something like that. That is the impact scale, and those impacts are huge. Like, it's awful if something like that happens. It's, it's, it's earth-changing if something like that happens. But the odds are still low. So when we look at the impact scales, we move down the impact. And when I say impact here, I mean number of people impacted in a serious way. So even something like Hurricane Katrina, the direct impact was a relatively low, low number of people compared to the total population of the United States and certainly the total population of the world. Okay, so it's a higher probability because the impact is lower. So if we want to say, well, what are the odds that you'll ever be in a terrible hurricane like Katrina? They're middle of the road, and if you say, well, I live in a place where those don't happen, then as long as you stay there, they're very, very low for you. But something equivalent is probably about the same. Maybe you live where a major ice storm could shut down all activity in your city for a week or two, or like several years happened to go in some areas, three weeks. Right. So that type of disaster, that regional-level disaster that has that middle-of-the-road possibility of affecting you is still pretty severe. But when we come down and say, well, what are the disasters that affect a neighborhood or a family or an individual, the probability that you'll experience one of those disasters in your life is an almost certainty. Because those disasters would be losing your job at a bad time. Okay? 
It could be a financial disaster that destroys families and causes them to lose their home. By the way, we're going to talk about your five survival needs today, and one of your survival needs is a shelter. So if you lose your home, that's bad. You've lost one of your survival needs that you thought you had met, and you've got to figure out something else. So don't tell me it's not a disaster. A, a financial collapse is like, you know, where everything just goes away to nothing. That's, that's a big impact. It affects the whole country. Odds it's going to happen to you much, much, much lower. This whole thing, the dollar will become worthless in five minutes. Not going to happen. If you want to worry about the economy being destroyed, it's happening right now in front of you so slowly over so long that you're adapting to it as we go, and it's too deep of a subject today. But a recession like we experienced in 2008 and 2009 affected a fairly large number of people. It probably affected you. But it actually affected, to the point of seriously altering the lives of people, a small number compared to the total, probably 8 to 9% of the population of the country. That doesn't mean your 401k didn't go down. You maybe didn't have to take a different job uh, or adapt in some way. But the people who really got hit hard, relatively low number. But yet, pretty likely that you'll have to deal with the consequences of a recession, even if there's no recession going. You can lose your job when there's no recession. Having a loved one become terminally ill is a disaster for a family. Having a loved one uh, have a serious illness Even if they survive, it could be a disaster for a family, especially if they're primary breadwinner. Imagine if dad, who's the primary breadwinner, who's been doing everything, and mom's been a stay-at-home mom for 15 years, has no real skill in the marketplace. Dad has a serious heart attack. Now he survives, and we're all glad he's alive, but he just can't go back to doing what he was doing. He has to adapt and do something else. This can be a disaster for a family, but it will be a disaster for a family unprepared. This is the impact scale. It's not that it's not a huge thing for you. It's that it's only a huge thing for a smaller number of people. And the lower the number of people affected, the higher the probability that it will happen to you. So there's an inverse relationship or an inverse ratio there. So we should actually start at the, at the, the, the disasters that we think of as being everyday disasters because they happen every day. It would just make sense. The good news is if we do that, and we do the best we can to prepare for the individual disasters, then what will happen is we'll go a long way toward being prepared for the bigger disasters, at least the large regional disasters like a major ice storm, a Hurricane Sandy, a Hurricane Katrina, a Hurricane Rita, a Hurricane Ike. Right? These are ones that are just coming to me. But those types of disasters, you are best able to get prepared for those by starting with the things that are what we consider, again, mundane, uh, work-a-day, everyday things, like being robbed, having your house burned down. These are all things you should be well-prepared for before you even, even bother to research the first words about what an EMP is. Because if you ain't prepared for a bad thunderstorm, you ain't prepared for the apocalypse. I'm sorry. You have to go in a linear fashion with preparedness. Or what you are is totally unprepared and you feel like you are because you have a bunch of fancy stuff. And because you have a bunch of, fa bunch of fancy stuff, you are actually in worse shape than if you just knew you weren't prepared at all. In many instances, that's the case because all it takes is that job loss. All it takes is that house burning down. You know, All it takes is some kind of a, a major upset in the family. You're completely off the rails, and even if you get back on, you might be off the rails for five years. Losing five years of 
developing the life you want is a catastrophe that never has to happen if you're prepared. And the fundamentals we're going to talk about today help you do the best you can in dealing with those things when they happen, because they will. And it's not going to be a survival bracelet um, that helps you survive one of those types of disasters. It's going to be your six survival needs. Six. Now, wilderness survival teachers will teach you five. Food, water, shelter, and uh, fire, and security. Okay, Those are what every wilderness teacher teaches. I have altered them slightly and added one. Food, water, shelter, okay, security, and energy. I've changed fire to energy. Because in the wilderness, fire is energy. Fire is how we do everything. In the everyday world, energy can be fire, but it can also be anything that produces heat or does work for us or provides light. Okay, So it's better to think of it holistically as energy. And then the other one I've added, which is actually the biggest killer in the world during disasters when it falls apart, is health and sanitation. If we can shore up those six things, and if we can create enough self-reliance in our lives to provide those things and needs for ourselves for two weeks, just two weeks, most people will get through any type of natural disaster as long as their shelter isn't completely destroyed. And you have to have contingencies for that. If we can get those things in place to where we can be self-sufficient or self-reliant on them for 60 days, most people will be able to mitigate almost any disaster that comes their way short of death or losing a family member to death or a, a serious crippling disease. And those 60 days will often give you the time you need to adjust and do the best you can with the crappy hand you were handed by life. Because when that stuff happens, there's nothing you can do other than deal with it. But being in a position where you can deal with it, that lets you make the most of the opportunities that life continues to give you. That's what this is all about. So if somebody's saying you this show and you're waiting for doomsday prepper crap, you're not going to get it. The most advanced shows we do come off of these fundamental realities. Bad stuff happens. You need to take care of yourself because if you don't think you're worth taking care of, no one else is going to either. And if you have kids, if you have family, if you have a wife, if you have a husband, and none of them care about this stuff, then you just get it done anyway because you care about them enough to do what's necessary. So let's start out with um, the first one, the one that most people generally think of when they think of preparedness first. Um, maybe security as well. Everybody wants bullets, you know, beans, bullets, and band-aids, right? Let's start out with the beans. So with food storage, what most people think of is big buckets of rice and beans, uh, big cases of MREs or uh, canned foods and stuff like that, and that's okay. Some of that stuff actually makes a lot of sense. We talk about it uh, at times. We're not going to talk about it today. We're going to talk about 60 days of food preparedness, 60 days. We're talking about how to get there so easily you won't even realize you've done it until it happens. So what you're going to do is you're going to start out with something that I, I think I'm the only person in the preparedness industry that teaches this. Uh, I know for years I was anyway. Um, and that is to journal what you eat. Everybody says eat what you store and store what you eat. That's my second step. Because most people don't know what they eat. They just start looking around the grocery store and say, well, that stores. So I should buy like 10 of those. That stores. So I'll buy like 15 of those because they're on sale or whatever. And there's a place for that to a degree, but... 
if it's not things you eat, it's not going to move off the pantry. It's not going to naturally rotate. It's going to become a big pile of crap you're going to resent one day if you never use it. And it's also going to become stuff that when you do need it, you really resent having to use it. You're like, I wish we weren't eating this crap. So the first thing you need to do is just get a notebook. That's like your day one thing with prepping. Get a notebook, a food notebook. You probably have some other notebooks in the future. So this one's just for food, at least until you're done with it. And you put on the counter in the kitchen. And every day that you eat anything, you're going to write down what you eat. Every day your kids eat anything, you're going to write down what they eat. You're not going to judge it during this period. You probably will uh, subconsciously. You might find yourself eating better for doing this as well. But just write it down. If, if dad eats something and he doesn't want to participate, you write it down for him. You know, mom eats something, she doesn't want to participate, you write it down for him. Kids probably don't want to participate, so you just write down everything they eat. If you can keep up with them. If you go in the fridge or the cupboard and there was something there and it ain't there anymore, assume the kids ate it, write it down that they ate it that day. Do this for two to three weeks. And then sit down with that journal and make another list. Just start writing, okay, they ate this can of this stuff. And just write them individually. And every time that item reappears, put a star next to it or an X, right, or a circle, something to keep count. And all of a sudden, you'll end up with this list that doesn't look anywhere near as long as you thought it would be because a lot of that stuff's on there over and over and over again over two or three weeks. And the stuff with lots of X's on it or lots of stars on it, however you mark it, that is stuff that is storable, start buying twice as much of that as you're going to use on a given week. So when you put down... Four cans of XYZ. Just buy eight. Buy eight. Do that until you have two weeks of it. Until you say to yourself, okay, now I can go back to buying four, and I'll always have a two-week supply until I start drawing on that reserve supply. And go to the next item or two that have multiple X's, multiple stars on it, and do the same thing. It's called copy canning. Keep doing that until you have two weeks of those items. Go further down the list. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. About a month will go by, a month and a half at most. And almost all the items that appear on that list commonly, you'll have a two-week supply of now. All you have to do now is do it again. Just do that. Just, just, just start over back at the top of the list and do it again. You'll add so little to your weekly grocery bill, it'll be completely painless. It'll be like getting a $20 raise at work. You feel like it doesn't really matter. Well, a $20 cut in pay probably doesn't really matter either. Now, if you're living at the edge of your rope, if like somebody that wrote in yesterday, you're living on ramen noodles, I know that's not true. But for the majority of people, you can absorb $10, $15 a week in extra costs. And once you get used to doing it, once you get used to doing it, you won't feel anything at all about it. It'll be irrelevant. So we're going to do the two-week buildup, and then we're going to replicate it a second time. When we're done with that, we're going to be at a month. Once that's done, we're going to go back and replicate that process. And we're going to be at 60 days. And I'll probably take you the better part of a year, eight months-ish. Right? If you want to speed it up, you can, but that's a great way to do it. Because if you have a reluctant spouse, they don't even realize what's happening. Women, you guys usually are the ones that put all the groceries away. He won't know. He won't have a clue. You know, you'd, all of a sudden there's just 60 days worth of food in the house. Yeehaw. It's all food you're going to eat anyway. It's all food you're going to eat anyway. Now you never run out of everything. You have a convenience thing going on. You can look for opportunity buys. It's awesome. 
And then kind of your next step after that is to become a producer. And you can do this kind of concurrently. So this is where we start looking at growing our own food a little bit, a little square foot garden, figuring out, like, are there parks where there's pecan trees? You can just go pick up pecans. There, there's, there's places I know of where there's pecan trees. If you go at the right time of year, you can fill up 20 buckets of pecans if you want to. No one's even there doing it. Free food. Or, you, you know, fishing, hunting. Or you learn to do things like canning. Right or learn to do dehydrating or make make different types of food, make up, to, but to be able to buy a large amount of cheap food, and then make twenty or thirty meals out of it that are pre prepared and go into that convenience mode out of the freezer or out of uh, the canning pantry or what have you. But you just start the produce like we were starting to get advanced already there, right? So if that's over the top for you, just start do one thing. One thing that takes you from being just a consumer to being a producer, either of the food itself or taking a product that's less expensive because it's bought in bulk and breaking it up and preserving it in some way. That's it. Food's done. Now, those of you that are somewhat advanced preppers go, man, he left a lot out. Not today I didn't. That's all you need. That's all you need to mitigate 80% of what's likely to happen to people from a food standpoint. A, a family with that 60-day deep pantry, well-stuffed freezer, some things put away in cans or dehydrated, cryovac, you know, biltonged, whatever, right? And you learn all that stuff as you go. Fermented foods, pickled foods, uh, being able to wildcraft a little bit, just that, and having 60 days of reserves. Um, if, if dad loses his job... Uh, if you can't find a job in 60 days, I don't think you're really trying as hard as you claim you are. So dinner will be served for the next two months. Okay, Water. Water is so important, uh, and so many people don't realize how, how unprepared they are to deal with something as boring as a water main break has caused contamination in the water, and they're telling you not to drink it. Or they found something in the water and you shouldn't be drinking it now. But uh, when they track it back, you've been drinking it for a couple weeks. And wouldn't it have been great if you'd been filtering it the whole time? I'm, I'm just saying. But this is something that's so inexpensive to have basic preparedness for. There's no excuse for anyone to not do it. I don't care if you're dead broke. Um, the cost of water, when it's available, is literally water cheap. We talk about dirt cheap. Water's cheaper than dirt, guys. Go price a yard of good soil. There's all types of fancy contraptions for water and what have you, and huge water storage containers and cisterns, and that's all cool stuff, and I like it, and we talk about it. But the most basic thing you can do is put water in a bottle and close the bottle and put it away somewhere. That's it. And the two best bottles that I know of to do this with are your standard soda bottles, your one-liter and two-liter soda bottles, And then there are these jugs, and I'm sure other companies are out there that make jugs that are similar, but the ones I use are made uh, by a, th a company called Arizona Iced Tea. And uh, I don't drink Arizona Iced Tea or soda, but I know people who do. And if you say, hey, will you save your bottles for me, they'll say, okay. And here's the sum total of the grand way that we clean a bottle like this so that it will be safe for us to store water in. We fill it with hot water out of the tap, put the lid on it, shake it up really good, dump it out, and put it upside down to dry out. We then fill it with clean water, put the lid on it, and put it away. That is all. 
If it makes you feel better, you can put a little bleach in it when you clean it out. And if you really, really want to, you can put a drop of bleach in it when you put it away. You don't need to. It's completely pointless, and all it does is make your water taste like crap. But if you feel better because of that, and if you don't think you'll do it otherwise, then do that. Okay? The truth about water is it stores infinitely. If you had a glass of water today, you drank recycled dinosaur piss. Yes, you did. That's what it is. It's called water cycle. All water on this planet has been around since the dawn of our creation on this planet. That's how long it's been since the planet itself was formed and became the planet that it is today. Before any of us were walking around, all the water that's here was here. That's it. So it's, it's, it, it, it is infinite. Now, it can go skanky and nasty and get really, really bad and kill you if there's anything in there. But if you seal a bottle of clean water and put it on the shelf, it will outlast you. So that's what you're going to do. How much? The more you have, the more you think you don't need any more, and the more you probably need. Um, we store just in the Arizona bottles, probably like 40 gallons. Um, and we have thousands of gallons actually of storage, but those are our main like water bottles and our water doesn't taste that great out of the well. So we put it all through a Berkey water filter, which I recommend. And so we constantly, when we get a new bottle, clean it out, put water in the Berkey, fill the bottle up, put the bottle away. That works out great. We always have a good supply on hand. When we do training classes like we just did, we have here, people here for three days. First day, just from drinking and making coffee and iced tea and stuff like that, it's gone. All the bottles have to be refilled. Now, there's are 50 people, but you kind of get my point. Like, if you have an emergency need, water goes faster than you think it will. The thing is, the only limitation you really have is space. Because the cost can be literally zero. You either drink this crap, the soda and the iced tea, or you know someone who does. The odds that your friend is not going to give you the, the bottles you know, or charge you money for them if they're not doing this themselves, pretty low. I'm sure you can find a supply of these bottles, so get it done. Why not milk jugs? Well, because if I set a milk jug into a closet to store it and there happens to be something as minute as a tiny little tack on the ground... And I just like brush the milk jug across it as I set it down and not even set it right on top of it. I'll come back to a wet closet and an empty bottle. I used water bottles like that when I first got into prepping. I'd go to Walmart and say, hey, it's only 60 cents a bottle. I can't buy the bottles are much less than that. And I'd buy a couple jugs of spring water or what have you every time I went to Walmart. And we put them in a closet. And one day I went in there and the closet floor was wet and two of like 30 gallons of water had leaked out on the floor. No more, never again. The soda bottles are designed to hold a beverage that contains carbonic acid in it. Okay? It, 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 and other acids in it. So it's designed not to break down. It's thick and it's designed to hold liquid under pressure. That means water can be in there for a very, 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 very long time. That's why we use them. So when we start to run out of space, or even maybe right away, if we have a freezer, we should put a few bottles in the freezer. Leave a little extra space so we don't kind of deform the bottle into something weird. Um, since they're plastic, at least they won't explode. But we put some in the freezer, as long as there's space. And as long as there's empty space in your freezer, stick a bottle in it until there's no more space. Keep doing it. Why? Now we have two purposes. We have additional water storage space, 
And if the power goes out, the freezer is going to hold its temperature cold longer before we even need to worry about. We now have an isothermic battery. Okay, that's a fancy thing that we call a bottle, bottle filled of water frozen in the freezer. I have a deep freezer, a chest freezer. Inside that chest freezer is a big empty space now because we just served a whole bunch of our food to our guests. Until we restock that freezer, I'll go shove all those bottles back in there. That means if I'm away, the power goes out, that freezer's not on a backup system, I'm gone for six hours, 10 hours, 24 hours. None of the food in there will be ruined. Freezers are actually designed to hold cold in, believe it or not. So now we have a dual purpose out of that water. It's helping us with our food. Then we're going to learn to make water safe to drink. That's the next step. As we begin to store it, we're going to learn methods of making water safe to drink. We're going to learn about filtration, and we're going to pick out a good filter for our water. I recommend a Berkey. It's a few hundred dollars. It's expensive, but it looks great, and it does an amazing job. You don't have to go that high end if you don't want to, but that's what I recommend. We're going to learn about boiling water. We're going to learn ways to boil water when the stove doesn't work because during a disaster the stove might not work. And we're actually going to see if those methods work. If we say we can boil a gallon of water on the, on the grill, go try it. See how, unless you have a side burner, see how it works out. We're going to learn a fundamental fact that during a disaster we need to conserve energy. We're coming up on energy soon. One of the main rules of energy is only use what you need when you absolutely need it if you're going to be a long time trying to last with what you have. So we don't need to be boiling water for 10 minutes to make it safe to drink. You need to boil water for one second to make it safe to drink. Water pasteurized is at 180 degrees. If you hold water at 180 degrees for 20 minutes... For 20 minutes, you will have safe-to-drink water. That is all you have to do. Now, as you go up in temperature, the time you have to hold the water at that temperature in order to get pasteurization continues to go down. By the time you go from 180 to 212 degrees and get the water to boil, you've actually spent quite a bit of time moving water at that temperature. And everything is dead by the time that water boils. And then, I know some of you, well, what if you had a way to get it to boil really, really fast? And when you get there, okay, it's not going to cool down really, really quick. How about this? How about you boil a gallon of water, wait for it to stop boiling, you know, turn it off and let it stop boiling, start a timer for 10 minutes. You want to stick your hand in that pot? Not if you've got a brain, you don't. It's going to take another 10 minutes to cool back down below 180 degrees. So we're going to conserve our energy, and the minute we get an actual boil in that water, we're going to kill the temperature, put the lid on the, on the thing, set it to the side. That water is now safe for drinking. When we're in that mode, we're going to know that that water is for consumption. That water is not for washing our hair. We don't need to pasteurize water to wash our hair with it unless it came from a really bad place that was our only option. That's drinking water. If we are going to make food with water... And we're going to boil that food in that water. We don't need to pasteurize it. So we're not going to waste energy heating the water twice. That water is for consumption without heating it again. It's now earmarked for that. We're going to learn that. And you just did. So guess what? You get a bonus today. You're now done with that step. You, except you've got to go out and figure out how to boil it. We're also going to get a filter. 
The filters are important because there are certain contaminants that can get in the water that boiling won't get rid of. Boiling might actually concentrate them. Organic things like Clyptosporidium and Shirardia that'll make you crap through the eye of a needle at a thousand yards. These things boiling kills. Certain poisons and toxins that are inorganic, in other words, they're chemicals, they're not living things. And I know technically some non-living things can be organic because they have carbon in them. But you get what I'm saying. Things that are toxic, sometimes when we boil water and we drive steam off, we actually reduce the volume of water in the pot. We don't eliminate the toxin. We concentrate it. This would be like if you start boiling salt water. Eventually, you will boil all the water off. You'll have salt residue. There'll be a higher concentration. If you boil the water down by half, Okay, there'll be twice the salt in the water. Well, if that's a toxin, it does the same thing. So that's why it makes sense to filter water. The only way to be sure of killing and getting rid of all living hazards is boiling. Though I would trust most water after it went through a Berkey filter or something that I consider to be the equivalent. All right. The next thing is we're going to consider doing things like rain catchment. For instance, I have 3,000 gallons of rain catchment off one of my buildings on a metal roof. That water is pretty good when it goes in the tank. It's on a 12-volt uh, pump that is converted to AC, but it could run off of a car battery really easy, put water anywhere we want it. That puts it through a very fine particulate filter. I would still put it through my Berkey before I drank it, but I would drink that water out of a Berkey. I would, with no qualms, drink that water after it went through a Berkey. It's probably better than water out of my well. Okay, But if I can't do that, if I can't put rain catchment in, then I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to locate some place I can go get water. And I'll tell you what, you could get more water than you think. You could get something simple. Let's say you wanted to collect water from a ditch. Now, that's not really the best thing in the world, but if you had no other choice and you wanted to do it and you had a vehicle that was running, well, this is what you could do. You could go get yourself a bilge pump for about 20 bucks. Okay? You get any container to hold water, throw it in the back of a pickup truck, including you could do something like rig up a tarp to basically act like a bed liner. You could bring a truckload of water home. I suggest you find better ways to do that. But that bilge pump is a 12-volt pump designed to run in a bump in a live well, uh, a boat in a live well. And you can you know, basically run a couple of wires from your car battery to it and pump water out of a ditch for $20. Not the highest rate of flow. Hopefully you're not in a tactically dangerous situation if you're trying to do that, but it will work. And how many of you are sitting there right now thinking, you know what, if I ever had to do that, i got an old boat out in the garage, there's a bilge pump in there, I could go get that pump and move water with it. Oh, wait a minute, if something floods, I could do that too. might be better to have a true sump pump down there, but I don't have one or have the money for it right now. That little bilge pump sitting there, I would have never thought of that if he didn't say that. See how simple that is? Now, they have limits to how much head they can raise and all, but they can move water pretty good. I've, I've had minnows turned over with it pretty bad to the point where they were scaled on uh, the one boat that I had from a little small $25 bilge pump. So one way or another, we're going to figure out how to get our hands on more water now while we have time to think before we need to and we can't think well. And we're going to hope we never need that water but we're going to know how to get our hands on it if necessary. Now we're going to move on to shelter. Shelter is the most overlooked thing because we all have it, at least most of us do. It's a key critical part of wilderness survival because exposure to the elements can kill you really, really quick. 
It's actually the way most people die in the wilderness is from exposure to the elements, either hot or cold. But in in general, in society, we figure, you look at all these houses, there's some place to go. Even in the apocalypse, some building would be abandoned I could go haul, haul up in. What about during just normal things? I mean, the first thing you need to do when it comes to your shelter is understand there could be a reason you have to leave your house. There could be a reason you have to leave your house, period. I mean, just that's just the, that's the way it is. There could be a reason you have to leave your house. Where would you go? If you don't know the answer to that question, you're going to go wherever they tell you to, and they just want to get you out of the house so they can go to the next house tell the next person they have to leave. They don't really care about you. It's not that they have anything against you. They're just, you know, first responders doing their job, ordering a mandatory evacuation. Or if during a disaster there's a storm and it wipes out your house, you need to figure out where you're going to go until you can at least get things going with the insurance company and maybe get some money from them to help cover some temporary living expenses. But there's always a lull in there for people. Some people say, well, we'd go to our relative's house. Really, have you ever talked to them about it? Have you ever made a reciprocal offer? If it happens to you, you guys come here. If you're sitting here right now going, well, I really don't know if I'd want them coming here, guess what they probably think. Now, you might do it if you had to, but wouldn't it be better if you had planned out how in advance? How would we deal with it? Where would everybody sleep? How long does it make sense before something would have to be done? Maybe we could have some stuff already positioned there so that there was some of some of our emergency supplies there so we wouldn't have to draw on everything that you have. Because maybe if they're close to you, they might even be affected by the disaster too. Maybe just not as bad. Okay? So a place you can go that you can count on. And I leave it up to you to figure out what that is. I mean, if you have a... If you have a MasterCard with a $100,000 limit, then you know a, a five-star hotel might be the answer for a while. I don't know. But if you're going to plan on that, know which one you're going to go to in advance. Um, whether it's, and I always say this about hotels, right? If you, if you are smart in your documentation package that we'll talk about in a little bit, you'll have several hotels listed with the front desk number where you can call and make a reservation. Because during evacuations, especially large-scale evacuations, you're not the only person with that idea. But you could be the fastest person with that idea because you had it before it happened. So just let that be a little piece of advice as well there. Um, you need a well-thought-out evacuation plan. Well, we would leave. We would go here. Really? How are you going to get there? How are you going to get there? Well, we're going to take the highway. Again, do you think you're going to be the only one with that idea? What if that's not possible? What if you end like people that evacuated the Houston area during Hurricane Rita? They were on the highway for 24 hours till cars started running out of gas. There were plenty of ways to get out of Houston other than I-45. Unfortunately for people, uh, it didn't seem like anybody else figured that out. So <clears throat> make sure you follow what I call the rules of three of evacuation. So there's the rules of three in wilderness survival we won't go in today. But I have my own rules of three for evacuation. Three locations and three routes and three rally points. Okay? So three locations is pretty clear. You should have three different places you could go. I mean, you're, you're probably going to have one you really want to be. That's that one place you know you can go that you can count on. But if something compromises that, you need to have two other places you would go as a backup. Um, whether they're a hotel room or campground somewhere 150 miles away or whatever. I, I really, you know, kind of say not the campgrounds, but 
you know, there's this big stigma about that. Um, if you have nothing better, at least you have that, and it's available. I mean, it, it can be done. This is not for the zombie apocalypse, obviously, but for uh, a wholesale evacuation due to a storm or some other major event, it's one thing that can be done. It's, it's one thing that can be done. But you need to have three places you would go. Then you need three routes to get to each of them, so that's a total of nine routes. So when you look and say, well, this A is my primary location I want to get to, and then there's an obvious straight-on route. And if you m jump early enough to get ahead of the curve, then you probably should take that if it's safe. But you should have two alternate routes to get there. Just work that out on Google Maps. That's all free. Then do the same with B and the same with C. Then you need to have rally points, because what if you and your wife are two totally different places, and it just doesn't make sense for either of you to go home first, and you both talk to each other and say, we're going to go to grandma's, let's say. Well, you should meet somewhere along the way. Make sure everything's synced up. So you meet at rally point one. If, if somebody's not there and can't stay because, let's say, the authorities say, move along, please, and either you do that or you're going to get arrested, you move along, please. So then you both automatically know to meet at two or three. And it even makes sense in some of these situations where if there's a reason you have to leave and the person that gets there behind you maybe is not affected by that reason and would think maybe you're still coming because communications are down, to have a way that they would know that you were there and they'll go ahead immediately and go on to rally point two. This could be something as simple as a certain can of a beverage or something that looks like garbage that generally nobody would bother to pick up. They'll be left in a certain place at that location. And if I get there and I see your Pringles can, I just head on to the second place. Really, really simple. So that is not going too far, guys. If you think that's going too far, then you didn't pay attention to all of the, all of the major regional disasters that happened in this country in the last 30 years. There's so many people that had to evacuate. So many people got separated. So many people looking for their loved ones, worried to death. Are they going to be okay? Are they alive? Do they need my help? The faster you can say to yourself, I know where everybody is, the faster you can start working on a constructive solution with a clear head. Okay. The next thing is you should have tools, tarps, all the things you need to be able to stay in your house if it's damaged but not compromised with safety. You have a hole in your roof, the storm's kind of passed, you can put a tarp over, keep water out of it, you can stay in your house safely, you're better off there than in a hotel. You're better off there without power than without than in a hotel or a shelter, a gym somewhere, a sports stadium, surrounded by other people that don't know what the hell they're going to do with themselves. Your home has all your stuff in it. No matter how bad things are, if the structure is still sound, most of the stuff is going to still be there. So I am a big believer in bugging out or leaving, evacuating is your last-ditch contingency or your first response when death is probable. When there's a hurricane coming and they issue a mandatory evacuation order, you should have already left. The writing should have been on the wall. But if it's some kind of, like if we evacuate every time there's a tornado threat here in Texas, we wouldn't live in our homes for like four months out of the year. Right? We have three months of terror, basically, is what we call it. Where you know, oh, there's another one, hopefully it doesn't come here. And, and the odds individually are pretty low that you're going to be the person to get hit, but somebody's going to get hit every summer. Well, if that hits you, but you're, you know, it didn't tear your house apart, rips part of the roof off, you should have the stuff you need to make go with what you have. 
Because when you're heading to the hardware store to buy it, yeah, everybody else is doing that right now. So get that stuff in advance. Just the basics. And know how to use a saw. Know how to use a hammer. Right? People have a chainsaw. Don't know how it works. Right? Or they have a chainsaw. They don't know how to sharpen the chain. Here's someone a little Oregon Power Now chainsaws like I have. They're like 400 bucks, but they're worth it. They sharpen themselves. You get an extra chain and sharpener for it. You, you can go through an awful lot with one of those. They're not going to cut down your giant piece of oak or whatever, but trees up to the size of about six to eight inches do a lot to get the trees off of the roofs and out of pools, etc. But if you're going to have a tool, know how it works. If you're going to have a ladder, make sure it actually does get you up on your roof. Go up on your roof while it's safe. Don't go up on your roof for the first time when there's danger and problems and darkness and wet. Understand all of these things. There's people who have never been on their own roofs. I think you should get on your roof, if nothing else, to clean out your gutters. Okay? Um, be careful when you do, please. And then get a good portable shelter. A tent, small RV, something. Right? Two military shelter halves from Old Grouch Military Surplus and the poles that go with them to set up a military shelter half style tent. And then pray and hope that you only ever use it for camping. Hope that you never need to rely on that. But if you do, at least you have it. You know, and those military shelter halves, I love those things. They're amazing tarps. They're the best value in tarps on planet Earth. Right now, two of them are snapped together, providing shade to my ducks in my backyard. My baby ducks that need a little shady spot during the day when the sun's up. So if they can do that, they can provide shade for you. You can collect water with them. There's a million things those things. They're one of the best investments you'll ever make, and they're so stinking cheap. USGI Military OD Green Shelter Half. Get yourself some of those, and you will find uses for them, I promise you. The fact that they have snaps and they snap together makes them infinitely flexible. Put pieces of rope on them, little short pieces of rope, and some uh, double dog clips, like a dog clip for a leash, but it's got the clip on both sides. You'd be amazed at how many different ways you can configure those things. They're strong as heck, too. You can make a hammock out of them. Just saying. All right, but get some sort of portable shelter and, and set it up. Learn how it works. Same people that buy a tent. They put it in their, their, their garage. We'll stay in there if we have to, if we have no other alternative. How do you set it up? I don't know. There's instructions in there. Okay, that'll work in the dark while your kids are screaming, where's my dog, Daddy? I'm just saying, like, I'm trying to bring, I'm trying to be not sensational, but bring some harsh reality to what actually happens to people every year in this country to you so that you are prepared. The next one is security. This is where everybody wants to run out and use preparedness as an excuse to buy a $2,500 rifle. No. Sorry. I'm not going to tell you that that's part of basic preparedness. I'm not going to begrudge you your $2,500 custom rifle, but that doesn't make you secure. Uh, your AR-15 is not really that great of a security tool for the types of disasters that are most likely. It'll probably be one of the first things that's obvious that you know authority would take away. Good handgun is probably a really good idea. But let's start out with developing OPSEC and situational awareness. What's OPSEC for you non-military types? Operational security. That means that we think about what we do while we're doing it, and we don't do things that make us obvious targets on a daily basis. Therefore, we're already in that mode when something goes wrong and we ramp it up a little bit. This means we don't give people information that they don't need to have at all times. We keep our mouths shut. 
Doesn't mean we're not friendly. Doesn't mean we don't chat. But we don't give away specifics, right? This is don't tell anybody you're a prepper because when the zombies come, they'll steal your stuff. No. This means we don't let on that I have a really nice house with a whole bunch of crap in it that you might want to come steal or your your meth head brother sitting in the other room that I didn't know about hears it, realizes you know me, and then starts casing my house. That's basic common sense OPSEC, and most people don't practice it. This means when you're checking out at the store and, and you're buying a bunch of stuff, you don't start telling the clerk what you're doing with it all. They don't need to know. It's not their business. Even if it's harmless, you are then going to put yourself in a mode of running your mouth too much. Operational security means you don't always take the exact same route everywhere you go. Because if you do that, you're predictable, and people can plan to deal with you in certain ways. No one would ever do that. Bullshit. Okay? Bluntly, bullshit. There's probably not a person listening to me right now that there could not come a time when someone might value harming you for some reason or abducting you for some reason. You know, we're, we have a really strong sense of security in this country that is a very thin veil of stability. If it breaks down just a little bit, we'll be a lot like countries where kidnappings are a normal form of small business. In Brazil, kidnapping is a small business, for God's sake. Not officially, but really it is. People understand, like, there's actually people whose job is to negotiate with kidnappers because there's a protocol and a procedure for it. And if it's followed, the probability you'll get the person back is much higher because what they want is money. You have to use your dadgum brains, as my dad used to say. Okay? There are, if you're a woman, there are men who would like to rape you. Plain and simple. I know. You don't think they want you. Well, I listened to a story from a 91-year-old woman who a guy tried to rape. A 91-year-old lady that was on one of these talk shows my wife works Guy broke into her house, forced himself on her. This guy was in his 20s. He's willing to rape a 91-year-old woman. So don't think you're immune, ladies. Now, you can learn from this woman because she feigned compliance, and when he took it out, she grabbed it and the other two things in two different hands, squeezed as hard as she could, pulled and twisted in opposite directions. I say that is your number one form of rape defense right there if you don't carry a gun. She said this guy was screaming and yelling, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And she told him, well, then you die, you son of a bitch. And when she finally let him go and called 911, the cops found him about 27 feet away from her porch, laying in a bush, bleeding in the fetal position, barely able to breathe. Good for her. She thought she used her head. There's always a way. How you think is more important than the stuff that you have. Do consider being armed. I think that everybody should be an armed citizen in this country. It's too damn easy not to. And the more of us to do, the more that white right will be protected and preserved. You want to fight for the Second Amendment? You know what? Your bumper sticker doesn't do a lot. But taking that person who's not quite sure about guns to the range, teaching them to shoot, teaching them the fun and the confidence to go with being able to handle a weapon, helping them pick out a gun and buy one for themselves and getting more training, That solidifies the Second Amendment, because then when somebody starts talking about taking that gun away, they understand it's their property and their rights that are being tampered with. You should do that for yourself, and you should get good training, not because you know somebody who really just wants more gun control says everybody should have a license or whatever, but because it's the smart and right thing to do. Because whatever you think your capabilities are under stress, if you actually need that gun, I promise you the reality is they're lower. 
and it's training that raises your lowest level of performance to where it's sufficient to get the job done. That's what training's really all about, especially for us civilian goofball types. So consider being armed. If you don't want to, you know, it's all up to us to make our own decisions. But I think it's worth to consider some other form of defense. At minimum, a good, solid pepper spray. Uh, Cold Steel Inferno is my favorite brand. If you doubt its effectiveness, let somebody spray you in the face with it. I suggest you do it in the lobby of an emergency room because it sucks really, really bad. Um, and then avoid the three S's. Frank Sharp Jr. talked about this in his interview on the show. Uh, the three S's are stupid play places, stupid things, and stupid people. And if we just don't go to stupid places and do stupid things with stupid people, we'll avoid the vast majority of threats to our personal security on a day-to-day -day basis. Finally, accept both the good and the bad realities about security. The good reality about security is we live in a country where you can be without security for your entire life, without any level of personal responsibility for your security. And since society provides stability and security, you may never need to be personally responsible for your security. The odds that someone is going to mug you, right? Ladies, that some guy that doesn't know is going to know you at all is going to break in your house and try to rape you are actually pretty low. I'm not saying it doesn't happen every day. I'm just saying you know, across the board, the individual's odds of it are pretty low. And that leads us to a false sense of security. Because the bad reality about security is you can go without it your whole life, but if you ever need it for one second where you don't have it, It can cost you your life. So we can't live in a paranoid state. We cannot. But we also can't live in a, in a, in a state of mind where we ignore any potential threats because we, we, we have to be responsible for mitigating that threat. And you know when to run, when to hide, and when to fight. We have people trained in public spaces that if there's an active shooter, they're supposed to hide first. You run first. And if you can't run, then you hide. And the second you're confronted with reality, you fight. You figure out whatever you can do to fight. If we teach people that, there'd be less success in these mass shootings. There really would. But instead, we tell everybody, oh, everybody go hide in a corner, close the door, turn off the light. So the guy just walks around killing people. They cower. They cower while a guy's going to kill them and just sit there and don't even try to fight back. It's a terrible thing to face with that, but you got to have a mental preparedness that I will fight. I will fight. And somebody tells you everybody could get down, and you can see a window. You get out the window and just run. Go. Drag people with you if you can. If nobody wants to come, go. You have kids in school. You tell your kids, if there's ever anybody, anything this ever happens in your school, and you can get out of school, go. Get out of there. Don't hide under a desk. That's how you end up dead. Security is extremely important, and the danger is you get along so often without it, you don't realize that's how long it takes. That's how long it takes, a split second. It could be literally a millisecond between life and death or serious life-altering injuries. So focus on security. Energy. Energy is actually pretty easy. First thing you should do is build a blackout kit. Notice I didn't say bug-out kit. Blackout kit. Batteries, candles. Uh, your radio, all that stuff should be in one place or two places. If you have a, a, a two-story house and you spend a significant amount of time on, on both floors, then you should split your blackout kit into two, put one on each floor, 
so that you don't have to go up or down the stairs in the darkness if the power goes out. There's a product called Mr. Beams. It is awesome. It plugs into the wall. It has a little light on it. And when the power goes off, it automatically turns the light on. There's even remote versions of it where it turns multiple lights on throughout the house. There's a remote control where you can turn lights on and off. Or you can just go buy very simple power failure lights is what they're called. Sylvania makes some good ones. They're like a night light you plug in the wall, and they automatically turn on if the power to that outlet goes off. So at least you can see your way to your blackout kit. So your blackout kit is all the basic stuff. This is not your generator. Okay, this is not your stuff for riding out the zombie apocalypse. Okay, this is just your basic stuff that you want to get your hands on if there's a blackout. So you're not going through 15 junk drawers trying to find a flashlight. Now, on that, we went out and bought quite a few of the Maglite 3D cell LED flashlights. I love those lights. We have one in the front windowsill, the back windowsill, one next to my bed, one in my truck, one in our SUV, one next to my wife's side of the bed. Because it's a light and it's a club, so it's a security and energy in one. And if you ever have to use a mag light on somebody as a weapon, and it's kind of dark out, well, you could do worse than to give them one quick flash in the face before you give them one quick whack in the head. Amazing what a tool that thing is if you know how to actually use it. Right? So, make sure that you have that blackout kit. In your blackout kit or near it, should be a, a recharger with rechargeable batteries, double A end loops as recommended by Stephen Harris, and triple A end loops. If you have double A's and triple A's, you can get by for a long, long time in your home without power because the next thing you're going to get is an inverter, a simple 800-watt inverter you can buy for about $49.95 uh, on Amazon.com. You can go to... Uh, Battery1234.com and see all kinds of back power, backup power stuff from Stephen Harris there. But you can certainly find the inverter I'm talking about, a 800-watt inverter. There's really not that big of a reason for you to get oh, bigger is better. I'm going to get a 3,000-watt inverter and bolt it to my battery. No, a simple 800-watt inverter, you're going to keep that in your car because your car is going to be your generator for your first step for preparedness. And you are going to keep that, that inverter in your vehicle, and with it, you're going to keep an extension cord long enough to reach into your house from wherever you park your vehicle, not in the garage, because you're not going to run your vehicle in the garage. And you're going to pop your hood up, and you're going to take the clips, and you're going to clip that inverter on your battery, and then you're going to set the battery, you're going to bolt the inverter to a board, little piece of scrap wood or plywood so it can sit somewhere nice without falling down in the motor and screwing everything up not to mention being broken. And you're going to plug your extension cord into it. You're going to run that extension cord in your house through a window. You're going to put a splitter on it, a three-way orange Stephen Harris splitter thing, right? The awesome find on solar one two, or, uh, battery1234.com. You're going to plug that in there, and you can run up to three devices off your car. And we can only run so much at one time off a car. But we can plug our refrigerator and freezer in. We can run that for two hours. We can unplug it, throw a bunch of blankets over it, and we don't have to worry about it again for a good 12, 15 hours. That's all we have to do to keep the food safe. See how easy that is? We can run a small TV set to get information. We can run lights. We can do all kinds of things with that inverter. Our cars, our trucks will run for a very very long time at idle, a very long time. So we have 
$20,000, worth of generator sitting in most people's driveway and garages, and they go through power outages with no power when a $50 generator is all they, or $50 inverter is all they need to have enough power to do the basics. You're not going to run your AC off of this, okay? You're not. You want to, if you need to run an AC, you get yourself a small, high-efficient window unit. You put it in a single small room in your in your house that's well, you know, insulated and closed up, and you get a small generator and you run that air conditioner during the hottest part of the day to keep that one room cool. And that way you have a place you can go, especially if you have young children and stuff in the house. You don't try to run your whole house off your car, but you can keep the basics going. You can keep the kids entertained. And what you're going to do is you're going to take that end loop battery charger and you're going to plug that in. You're going to keep all your batteries charged for the entire duration of the outage. And that's so low draw. If you're not doing anything else major, you shut the car off. You can charge AA and AAA batteries out the wazoo before you need to worry about running that car on idle for a while again. But we're going to keep an eye on it because we don't want the car battery to die. But if we have two cars, we're going to make sure we get park the car that's running where it's going to be easy to get the other car over there. So if that car does die, we have a backup generator. That's mom or dad's car if you're dad or mom. Okay? And we can jumpstart one vehicle with the other and get the whole process going all over again. Now we have power. Now we have power for our flashlights. We have power for our phones. We can charge our phones in our vehicle. Make sure we have phone chargers, phone battery packs for our phones because we can charge those while we're using the phone. Then we don't have to worry about things later. We have that reserve power. We can dump it into the phone and put the pack back in and walk around with our phone so we can stay in touch with people during a disaster. See how easy this is? A lot of times, even if the cell phone itself is not working, text messages is working. So we can, we can get in touch with text. We can use social media to communicate. But we have power. We have power. At this point, it makes sense to say, I'm either going to build a battery bank, and you can learn how to do that at battery1234.com with Stephen Harris, or get a generator. Um, Stephen recommends like a Honda EU2000 generator. They're a wonderful generator. They are kind of expensive, and they are only a, a two-kilowatt generator. But, man, they do a lot. Um, I think you can do worse than going and buying like a, an uh, 8,500 watt or 9,500 watt uh, Troy built um, uh, style generator from like Home Depot or Lowe's. I have one. Uh, I haven't had to use it much here at all. When we lived in Arkansas, it was our number one most valuable prep we had. We had very unreliable power during storms, and we were the last people to get our power turned back on. And you could, you, you never even really could complain because you didn't understand why. There's 20,000 people over there without power, Mr. Spirico, and there's 12 people without power on your street. Who do you think we're going to take care of first? Okay, go ahead and do that. I understand. And we had our generator. We had one time, the power went out at Christmas. My son was up there. We had, uh, God, we had a huge snowstorm and then ice on top of it. Trees came down everywhere. Power's out. Neighbor comes down to check and see if we're okay. With the generator running out back, he opens the door and looks in with the Christmas trees blinking, the football game's on, and there's steaming hot food on the table. We're sitting down for Christmas dinner. Yeah, thanks for checking on us. We're okay. Can we do anything for you? Because we had a simple generator and some wood stockpiled and a fireplace and all that other simple, basic stuff. We weren't worried about the zombies. We were worried about what was likely to happen, in this case, a big ice storm. 
So now we want to either add that generator or battery bank. Um, I want to tell you that I, I lean toward the generator because then when you add your battery bank next, it, it, it makes that battery bank so much more valuable. I have a four battery battery bank in my closet in my office that will run my entire setup where I could do this show. I could do two hours worth of work and I wouldn't kill my battery bank. And I, that means I can publish my show. It means I can record my show without this sound. Bah! So the show can go on. But when that battery bank begins to run down, I can then take that generator and charge the battery bank back up. And later at night, when I don't want to be advertising that we have power to all the neighbors, I can be running, as Steve says, silent and deep using my battery bank by dumping energy back into it. The other thing you can do, though, this is why you might build the battery bank first. You can take the inverter that you bought for your car, run the extension cord into your house, have your car on idle, use the inverter to run the battery charger to top off your battery bank so that later when you don't want your car running because security is more important during a disaster, you can pull it in the garage, lock the door, and use the battery bank for the night so that the kids can watch something on their iPhone or what have you. So this gives you so much flexibility. A home that has two cars, two inverters, a good supply of extension cords and cables, all the adapters you need for to charge your devices from your car and from AC, a battery bank, and a generator is in great shape, except for one thing. got to run all of it, so you got to have fuel. I believe in storing fuel, and the simplest system I know is the 12-can rotation overtime system. So... You can do this one can a month until you have 12 months stored up. You get a gas can. You get a, a, a Sharpie marker. Five-gallon can. You write a big number one on that can. You fill that can up with gasoline. You set it on the floor in your garage. You're done for this month. Next month, you get yourself another gas can. You write a number two on it. You fill, now, you might want to go ahead and get four to start out with if you can make the investment and get ahead of the curve. But you get it. One, two, three, four. Okay. Then you get one, you put five on it. Then you get six. Then you get seven. Gas will store fine for a year. So once you get your 12 cans up, when you're going to go to the gas station next time to keep your vehicle full like you should, you take the number one gas can, you dump it in your car or your truck, throw the can in the vehicle, or you go down to the gas station, fill up the vehicle, refill the can, put it on the other side of the stack. So now your can say two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, one. That way you don't forget that the last time you went, you did the number one can. Next month, one of your fill-ups, you take the number two can, you dump it in your car, go down to the gas station, fill it up, bring it back, put the number two after the number one until you get back to a full rotation. You do that for the rest of your life. You always have 60 gallons of gasoline on hand. None of the fuel is more than 12 months old. And once you have your 12 cans, you never actually buy more gas than you need for your car ever again because the can dumps the gas into the car and that causes the rotation. See how simple that is? Now I got 60 gallons of gas. I got two cars. I got a generator. I got a battery bank. I got rechargeable double A's and triple A batteries. I haven't made any major investments. I'm well under 500 bucks in this if I buy a cheap generator. Even with a good generator, um, like a Troy built, and the gas cans and the gas, I'm into this for maybe $1,000, but I can walk through the average natural disaster where I have power out for a few weeks. And when power's out for a couple days, I don't even care. It's an inconvenience. 
It's not a disaster anymore. Simple. So simple. And that's your biggest cost in everything we're going to talk about today. That's why we can do it slowly over time. If you're going to go and get something like a Honda EU 2000, which is a wonderful generator, that alone is a thousand bucks. But unless you're running it every day or something like that, you'll probably have it for the rest of your life. It's lightweight. It sips gas. 2,000 watts is a lot of power. It'll top off your, your, your battery banks, no problem. It will run a small window unit air conditioner, though not a lot of other things with it. Uh, but it will do that and quite a bit of other stuff at the same time. So it will keep one room in your house cool. It is very, very quiet. It's easy to move around. And you can buy a second one later on, and they make a little thing that pins them together. And now you got a 4,000-watt inverter generator. So it is a great option if you have the money. That's probably the best generator you can invest in from a standpoint of long-term investment. Easy to maintain. Not much goes wrong with them. Every that owns one loves it. Health and sanitation is another thing that we overlook. Um, one of the most important things we can have is a way to dispose of or at least deal with human waste. There will be times when sewers will back up and you cannot use the toilet. Now, it also makes sense. I mean, if you got, like, I have a swimming pool, and let's say our well was down and our pressure tanks ran out. Well, I could still go get a bucket of water and flush the toilets into our septic. But there's times where you can't use the toilet. The cheap, simple solution, though it might seem gross, is a five-gallon bucket, an old toilet seat, a bunch of garbage bags put away for this purpose, and a whole bunch of that blue stuff you put in porta-potties or RVs. And when somebody goes, you squirt some of that stuff in there until you get to a point where there's enough of it in there that someone draws a short straw and has to tie it off and puts it in a pile, and hopefully we get back to a point where the trash service is back in and can get rid of it for us soon. A lot of other ways, composting, toilets, etc., are more advanced. If you have the ability to put some other solution in place, do it. If you have no ability to put any other solution in place, go down the RV store, buy a couple big bottles of the blue stuff, get a bag of contractor-grade garbage bags. You don't want these ones to break. Find an old toilet seat at a thrift store, get a five-gallon bucket, put it away, and it's there if you ever need it. If you ever need it, as much as you don't want to think about it and don't want to talk about it, it could save your life and the lives of your family because it is illness that kills the most people in long-term grid-down scenarios. And yes, it can happen here. Okay. The next one is get a good medical kit on hand and keep it on hand at all times. No sense to say first aid kit. First aid kits are the plastic pieces of junk you get from Walmart, say 199 pieces, and that means they have 190 batteries and nine other little items. Okay, a good medical kit has all the first aid gear in it, but also has just things like all your major over-the-counter prescriptions, right? If you're on maintenance medication, extra supplies of those. And gauze, ace bandages, wraps, all the stuff that Doc Bones talks about. There was a recent show with Doc Bones. I'll put a link in today's show notes to the show uh, that, that Doc Bones answered that very question of what you should have in it. Put together that med kit. Also, develop a disaster time procedure and protocol. In other words, a procedure is how you do something. A protocol is when you implement the procedure. It's a time that you implement it. So we have a way we live day to day in our house. Hopefully everybody washes their hands. But in a disaster where everything's all messed up and skanky and there's injuries and scratches and wounds, we're going to be extra careful with our sanitation. We're going to have procedures that are extra hyper careful. 
We're going to know what those are. We're going to have practiced them in, the, in, in, in peacetime, so to speak. And we're going to know when we implement them. And when we say, family, we are implementing these procedures now. Okay, we're now, we, have, we, are, we are now in a protocol of where we have a raised enhanced danger for health. Everybody knows what that means. And everybody not only does it, but they start watching each other. And these are things like drinking water. Hopefully we all drink some water every day. But if we're without power, we have backup power, thankfully, because we filled in that blank. We can't really run an air conditioner. And we're trying to deal with the situation. Everybody's sweating. We should have a, a procedure, right, where we now are drinking water X number of times a day. And a protocol, right, that if I look at you and you look like you need water and I tell you to drink, you drink, whether you think you need to or not. And we look out for each other. We have general day-to-day -day safety, but when there's been a storm and things are blown over, we have gloves and the, 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 the protocol is before we go into that situation to try to clean things up, we put the gloves on before we implement the procedure. Got it? Really simple. Sounds, sounds all high-tech, first responder-ish, but it's just common freaking sense. And we need to think about this in advance because you can think clearly right now And in a disaster, you're not going to think clearly unless you already know what you're supposed to do. Okay? The next thing is learn the most basic uses of herbs, herbal preparations, and things like essential oils. I'm not going to say much on that, but they can do so much for us in, in, in good times and bad. It's worth doing. And then, yeah, just keep going from there. But if you do all that, you are in the top 1% of prepared in this country. Just by doing that. That's something that any family can do in less than one year, all the things on that list, and not spend more than, let's say, $2,000 more than you would have spent anyway, and have a benefit in the now from it. Okay? There's some other basics that we need to do that get left out if we just look at those needs. One, cash. Make sure you carry cash and have more cash at home as well. If you're going to carry $100 bucks on you at all times, I say carry 10 ones, okay, and four fives, right? And then, you know, some tens and twenties to balance the rest out. So you have small bills. Gee, people aren't always able to make change in a situation where all of a sudden you have to rely on cash because they don't have that much cash. So have cash on hand both at home and make sure you don't, like, just carry big bills. That's, that's a real big mistake, And if you have cash on you, and you like to say you're going to be the guy that carries like 150 bucks, have like 50 bucks in your wallet, and the other 100 somewhere not in your wallet. So if you ever are held up or something, and you have to give up your wallet, you still have some cash on you. A lot of people carry dummy wallets, one wallet in each pocket, one wallet stuffed with a bunch of those fake credit cards that they send you. Right? Some Monopoly money and some bullshit in there. So you hand it to the guy, it seems like there's something in it. You hand him your wallet. I prefer the wallet that actually holds a, a gun, a little 380. When you go to hand him your wallet, he gets the, gets the bullets too. But a dummy wallet's not a terrible idea. I'm just saying. But make sure you, no matter what, you break up your cash. You want my wallet here? It's not going to do him any good doesn't look like you, so the ID is not going to do him much good. You're going to make a phone call, the credit cards are canceled. He's getting away with 18 bucks, and you've still got money on you to deal with the situation that you're in now. 
Pretty simple, but people don't do it. Insurance, keep it updated, know what you have, and make sure what you think you're covered for, you're covered for. I'll leave it at that. Bank accounts, really makes sense to have two different bank accounts with two different banks. Now, I'm not talking about bank holidays. I'm just talking about things not working. One branch being open, the other branch being closed, you know? Two different bank accounts. You can have one that's just a small bank account, a little bit of money in it. Make sure you're not getting charged fees on it, or there won't be any money in it when you think you need it. But two bank accounts and all the information you need to access them. I mentioned documentation earlier. I have a whole show about an hour long on the documentation pack, as I call it. But build the pack. This is all the information you need if something goes wrong. You do it on a computer, so you can print out multiple copies. You put it in a three-ring binder. You put one in all of your vehicles, and you keep one in the house. When you have kids that start driving and they have their own car, you print a copy out for them. You put it under their seat. When your 17-year-old daughter calls you crying and freaking out because the whole town is being evacuated because of a disaster and you can't come get her, you say, turn to page 37, honey. See that map? You see where you are? Okay, get on that road and go here. You see where that big X is? Daddy will be there waiting for you. And all of a sudden, it's not that big a deal. All of a sudden, it's not that big a deal. Without that, it's a big freaking deal for a 17-year-old girl. It's a big freaking deal for you worrying about her, isn't it? Just simple that is. That documentation pack is probably one of the most valuable things you can ever build. It's probably one of the biggest contributions I've made to the prepper community by laying out how to do that. Go listen to that episode. I had a master gunnery sergeant from the U.S. Marine Corps when I was in about my second year of the show come to an event to meet me and say, that is the single biggest gift you've given people. I hope they're using it. He's like, you didn't miss one single thing that needs to be in there. And it's all things that people can do. It includes the rules of three I talked about with the evacuation routes, bank accounts, financial information. And I give you in that show how to encrypt those numbers in a way that anybody in your family can decrypt them. And no, it won't stand up to the NSA or something like that, but your average random scumbag steals your car, ain't going to know what to do with them. No idea. In fact, trying to use them the way I'll set it up will probably get them caught. Really, really simple. I don't have time to go into it today. Make sure with communications you have a weather radio and a battery-operated radio, both. Because the weather radios are usually big. They rely on a lot of battery. Yeah, they have the cranks. You get tired of cranking them. But a simple little AM, FM radio. I mean, a little like when we were kids, right, the old transistor radios going down on the old man with a... Transistor Radio. Remember that song? I'm going to play that song for you guys at the end of today's show. Jimmy Buffett's version of a brown-eyed girl, okay? That's going to be the ending music for today. But that little transistor radio that everybody used to have, you used to put in your tackle box and take fish and set up on the bank and listen to, those things go forever on one set of batteries. If you have rechargeable and loop batteries that go in there, you can at least stay informed. So make sure you have a weather radio and that second, two is one, one is none, backup radio that's just a plain old radio. I believe you should all get TV antennas. I know a lot of you guys don't even have TVs anymore. Well, that's fine. But if you do, and if you live somewhere where putting up a simple set of rabbit ears or a good little, they make these outdoor antennas. You bolt on the side of your house. They look like a flat panel. With digital TV, they work really well, better than the big old school ones. When I was a kid, we had one of these huge ones on a pole. And we got like three stations when it was pointed one way and two when it was pointed another. And I had to go out with a, with a monkey wrench, a pipe wrench, and turn because we didn't have a rotor. And my dad would go a little further, a little further. Okay, wait. All right, come in. 
And we wanted to change the channel back. I had to go out and turn it back the other way. Right? So these things work better than those. And if you don't want it mounted on the side of your house or whatever, you don't want to use it day-to-day, just get one, get a pre-fitted coaxial cable that will reach outside, test it, make sure it works. And when you're in that situation, set it up, plug it into your smallest TV, uses your least amount of energy, at least you can see what's going on. Real simple. All you had to buy was the extra antenna. If you live in a place with really good signal, you don't need that. All you need is rabbit ears. Okay? Um, make sure your cell phone, you have those battery packs for your cell phone. Make sure that um, you have all the accessories you could ever need for your cell phone to keep it running. You should be able to charge your cell phone straight off a USB port. You should be able to charge it off of uh, DC power and AC power, all three. Here's the cool thing. You know that $50 inverter? Usually the ones that we you get have a, a USB port on them. Okay? So that USB port will charge your cell phone. Plugging directly into the inverter will charge your cell phone. Or going inside the car and using the 12-volt outlet, if you have all the accessories, will charge your cell phone. Or one can charge your cell phone and one can charge the battery pack for your cell phone at the same time. USB splitter and all somewhere in major business. But if you ever if you have all the things for your cell phone, you have flexibility. You can be charging a cell phone in the car or in the house. What if you're charging your cell phone in the house? People are trying to get in touch with you during an emergency. You can't hear the phone ring, right? Or you have a space occupied being charged by the cell phone. You have something else you need to plug into there. If the cell phone's that adaptable, you move it somewhere else and free up that space. So that's why I say have all your accessories and battery backups. Your cell phone is the, one of the most valuable tools you can have. You get 5.0 uh, Radio Pro or something like that. Let me look on my phone real quick. 5.0 Radio Police Scanner is the app. Uh, I'm sure they make one for uh, like um, Android phones as well. You get that app on your phone, and all the major emergency channels, like the emergency medical and police departments and all, are on those like, like a scanner, except it's on your phone. So you can listen to what's going on from the first responders during a disaster. That's good information to have. It's right there on your phone, and you don't need a second piece of equipment. I think the, the, the uh, pro version of that app is like $4.99. I have it on my phone. It's great. And you can not just listen locally with that like you can with a scanner. You can listen all over the world, all over the country. If something's going on in adjoining cities that you're worried about spreading to yours, you can listen to what's going on there. If you have friends and family in those cities that aren't switched on to this stuff like you are, but you can get information to them, you can listen to that and get information to them. This year's cell phone today is a computer. Understand its value. It's entertainment for the kids. It's communication with your friends. It's gathering information. It's interacting with people on social media when you can't get to them through other channels. It's finding out information about what's going on. It is so important. Make sure you keep it charged. And then a 72-hour kit. And the way I say it is skip the tactical shit at first. Skip the tactical shit, comma, at first. Even if you have the tactical stuff. Get everything else taken care of first and then fit the tactical stuff in. When I say tactical, I'm talking guns, ammo, you know, fire starting equipment, stuff like that. Start out with the basics. Three days of food, clothes, and water. One of those for every member of the family. Your most likely bug out is not going to be to the top of a mountain. It's going to be to a friend's house or the floor of a hospital room. The number one real-world use of 72-hour of kit bags that I've heard about from members of this audience, and I've heard lots of people with this story. Somebody ended up in the hospital for some reason. We grabbed the, the, the grab-and-go bags, and when we went to the hospital and I ended up sleeping on the floor next to my wife, I had stuff 
I had stuff. Or when I was sitting in the, in the, in the, in the waiting room with the kids, we had stuff. We had a change of clothes. We had snacks, etc. Your kid wants to put his Game Boy, his old Game Boy, in his bug out bag, let him do it. Make sure you have a way to run it. So a 72-hour kit, I have whole shows on that as well. And I'm not, again, the tactical stuff, I'm not saying not to do it. I'm saying skip it at first. Also have a way to remove it. Generally, they don't let you bring all that stuff into a hospital. Again, I know other things go wrong. I know we should be prepared for them. That's why I want that stuff there, too. But I'm telling you, the number one use has been medical-related and having to stay somewhere or even being somewhere you didn't plan on spending the night. And then somebody ends up in the hospital, has to stay overnight, and it's not like they're not going to die, and the, and the partner needs to get some sleep, and you have stuff to go to a hotel with without going all the way back home because you want to be there in the morning to help try to figure out if you can get them out of there or get them, or get them transported. This stuff, I mean, this, I've heard about this from so many people. Because we had it, we never thought of it for them. Because we had it, please don't leave this one out. It's not just for the guy that thinks he's going to live in the mountains and fight, you know, the, the, the blue helmet government guys. My final thought this week or the, the, today, if, if you won't help yourself, why would anybody else? You, you think about all these things you have to do. It's not that much. It, it, a year of, of, of committing to getting all these things I talked about today done, including the other basics, no problem. Anybody that wants to can do it. You might have to stretch and scrap a little bit to get it done. You might not get every single piece of it done, but 90%. Okay, but if things go wrong and you need my help and I haven't done this stuff, how can I help you? Don't you think I need to see to myself first? Don't you think your neighbors need to see themselves first? Now, the interesting thing is you do all these things. You get in a really good place in life, and you develop skills and knowledge along the way. This basics blueprint... Within two years, you'll be ten times more prepared than this basics blueprint if you do this one in the first year. And people that don't want to take this approach, this is what I say, I really can't help you. Now, if somebody wants to get serious and say, oh, I knocked it all out in 60 days, okay, who are? Good for you. Some people run faster than others. That's fine. Some people have means that others don't. So I'm not saying you have to take a year to get there. I'm saying if you don't want to do all these things as your first things, I can't really help you because you're like the person that comes to me and says, I want to build a business making $100,000 a year. And I say, have you ever had a business before? And they say, no. I said, well, let's, let's get your business to produce $100 a profit a week. Because that's not enough. Well, I know it's not enough. But let's get your business to produce $100 a profit a week like clockwork, as fast as possible. If you can do that in a day, great. If you can do that in a month, great. But get it done. You know why? If you want to build a $100,000 business, you need to make about $2,000 a week. you got to get to $100,000 before you get to $2,000. It's on the way there. That's how this stuff is. That all the stuff, that those of you who are somewhat advanced preppers are thinking, I would add this and this and this and this and that. All this stuff's on the way to that. If you're there, it's how you got there. Or you skipped it, and it's still not done. Some of you guys have been doing this stuff for five years, ten years. You're, you're thinking of all these things I left out. I bet you, you go back through the list. Those of you who are stuck on that, you're going to find two or three things you haven't done yet. Get them done. Go back to the fundamentals. 
Remember when you played Little League or football or I don't know, you know, volleyball or any sports when you were a kid. If you guys were in the military, remember when you were doing your training and it was falling a little bit wonky. It's always what every good trainer does. You take the student back to the fundamentals. Every good coach takes the student back to the fundamentals. Every good athlete takes themselves back to the fundamentals. Every good martial artist will spend time working on fundamentals every training session. Every single training session. Every good tactical shooter will work on draw, uh, malfunction training, magazine changes. These are the fundamentals. And work on it over and over again. Spend more time on the fundamentals than anything else. The greatest golfers in the world spend more time on the fundamentals than all of the complicated get-out-of-the-woods the, the stuff. Right? It's true in everything. When people become really good at something, they always make the fundamentals look like they're not even... They're not even difficult in any way. They make them look effortless. Preparedness works the same way. You get through these fundamentals so they become effortless. Power goes out, blackout kit's there, even the kids know where it is. Kids know what's going on. Power went out at night. We're not going to have TV. We don't know how long it's going to be out. We're rationing our power. They're in their pajamas with end-loop batteries plugged into their Game Boy, pretending to camp with a fire in the fireplace. Ten minutes after the power goes out, when it comes back on at 45 minutes, now they're actually a little disappointed. Now they're actually a little disappointed because last time it was kind of fun. So then you turn the lights back out, pretend it didn't come back on. Or the power goes out for three days and everybody's miserable. Which one do you want it to be? The choice is yours. This basic level of preparedness, no matter how advanced you want to become, this is where it starts. Hope that helps you. Now, again, I'm, I've been doing different shows every day, and I had a diff, or different uh, uh, um, songs every day for you guys. And I had a totally different song picked out for today. But when I talked about the transistor radio, I just thought that would be cool because it fits in with the show. So this is an old song called uh, Brown Eyed Girl, released in uh, 1967, I believe, by uh, Van Morrison on a album called Blowing Your Mind, but I've always loved Jimmy Buffett's cover of this song. So here is uh, the, the guy that's, one of the lines of one of his songs is actually, any manual labor I've done was purely by mistake. One of the guys I think is one of the most successful musicians in the world with an incredible cult following, and I've always loved his music, uh, covering Brown Eyed Girl, and uh, when you hear the transistor radio, remember, even though this was about... You know, the way things were in 1967, there's still a place for that transistor radio in your preps. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.